Hi, everybody. Grab a Bible, open it to Matthew 27, and happy Easter to you. In August of 2012, uh, these bones were found underneath a parking lot in Leicester, England. They were confirmed to be the bones of King Richard III, uh, who was killed in the Battle of Bosworth in uh, 1485. So they're very old. After apparent torture, he was hastily buried in a shallow grave that wasn't even dug to size. Now, there's some scandal there, right? I mean, kings deserve royal treatment. They deserve respectful burials. Uh, even King Herod over Israel, who was the king when, when Jesus was born, he's known historically as a terrible and a hated monarch. But he was buried in a, an ornate chamber atop a mountain outside of the city of Jerusalem. The tomb is made of red limestone, and it's been declared to be one of the most ornate tombs to ever be unearthed. Buried under a parking lot is not appropriate for a king. And as inappropriate as it is to dishonor a king in his death, it's far worse to dishonor them during their life. I mean, royalty deserves some measure of respect. You know, when a visiting foreign dignitary comes into the States, you know, the, the protocols are highly detailed and very exact. I mean, could you imagine if a member of a royal family came into America and they were met by a mob who beat them and verbally abused them and left them for dead? I mean, that would immediately become an international incident. I mean, imagine how scandalous such a thing would be. You know, the Bible is clear that Jesus is king. The Gospel of Matthew begins with his genealogy of Jesus by stating that Jesus is the son of David, the kingly line. The wise men come to visit the young Jesus and they ask, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Salome, the mother of James and John, two of the disciples of Jesus, they, she asks Jesus, would you grant that my sons would sit on either side of you when you come into your kingdom? Jesus' own preaching content centered around the message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The parables that Jesus told were concerning how his kingdom functions from the moment of his birth. Jesus is recognized as king. So glory and honor and authority are his alone. He is divine royalty. And that makes his death and the surrounding events even more shocking, scandalous even. Now in Matthew 27, we're introduced to several events that precede and happen during Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Let's go to the text, Matthew 27, starting in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. 
As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. A scandalous, humiliating time for Jesus. And notice as they walk through the text, they, they are mocking him over and over and over again. And they make three mocking claims about Jesus. Number one, they mock him that he is powerless. Go back to verse 39. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Jesus had claimed to have all power. He claimed that he could destroy the great temple in Jerusalem and that he would rebuild it in three days. Now, that's a ridiculous claim. The temple had been under construction for over 50 years by that point, long before Jesus had even been born. Now, the crowd never realized what Jesus actually meant by stating this about the temple. He was referring to his own body, to his own life, that if they killed him in three days, he will rise again. All they see are his claims to power being nothing. He can't even carry his own cross. He's so weak. Somebody else has to do it for him. He's certainly not powerful. Throughout this whole section of Matthew, there seems to be this curious expectation on the part of, of everybody surrounding all of these events. They're hoping, they're almost expecting Jesus to do something incredible. They cry for him to come down in verse 40. They cry out the same in verse 42 and again in verse 43. They do it again in verse 49. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Everybody's watching. And if there's any time for Jesus to prove his claims of power, it's now. But he doesn't. He is apparently powerless. Mocking statement number two, they mock him that he is king. Go back to verse 28. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Skip to verse 37. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They mock him as king. They put the crown of thorns on his head. Now, the crown is supposed to be a symbol of dignity. But now it's there to show that he's humiliated. They put the reed in his hand to mimic a king's scepter. Now, it's supposed to be a symbol of power, but now it's to show them that he's powerless. In fact, they take the reed and they beat him with it. They place this scarlet robe on him. The, the kingly robe was to be a symbol of identity as king, 
And now it's there to show that he's a nobody. They install this nameplate over the top of the cross, and it's supposed to declare to the whole world all of the accolades of the king, but now it's there to list his supposed crimes. It's to show why he's guilty, not why he's glorious. They take everything about him, they take all of his claims of kingship, and they turn it all against him in mockery. Mocking statement number three, he is unable to save. Go to verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. I think this is the worst insult of all. He cannot save. Now, ironically, Jesus' name literally means God saves. They had witnessed Jesus, this whole crowd. They've witnessed Jesus accomplish incredible things. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus gave sight to the blind. Jesus cured lepers. Jesus cast out demons. Jesus resurrected the dead. And now none of that matters. Because now those things look like cheap parlor tricks because apparently Jesus can't save. I mean, if, if there's a time to do a saving work, it's for himself right now. I think scandalous is the right word to use for these events. It certainly seems like Jesus lost. I mean, they showed him, right? I mean, they proved he was powerless. They definitively declare he's not a king. They, they show to the entire crowd he cannot save. They won. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He's dead. Game over. They won. And for a few days, they seemed to be right. They relished their supposed victory. You know, after years of plotting against Jesus, they finally succeeded at getting rid of him. They were right about him all along. But as we now know, they could not have been more wrong. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. 
So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. You know, the cross seemed to show that Jesus was wrong and his enemies were right. The cross seemed to show that Jesus lost and his enemies won. But the resurrection of Jesus from the dead shows the reality that Jesus was right and his enemies were wrong. The resurrection shows that Jesus wins and his enemies lose. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead changes everything. And years after Jesus' resurrection, a man that we know of as the Apostle Paul, who had been commissioned by the resurrected Jesus to take the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection around the world, Paul writes some incredible words about Jesus' death and resurrection. And in so doing, he reveals several ironies about the cross, ironies concerning all of these mocking statements they made against Jesus. Here's what he writes, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, let's take a minute. Let's look at what Paul says here about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and, and now why these mocking statements that they made about Jesus are actually quite ironic. So here are three ironies of the cross. Number one, the one who is mocked as powerless has all power. Jesus, Paul says, is the image of the invisible God. The, the word for image there is a Greek word, icon. So if, if you could take a picture of the invisible God, it's a picture of Jesus. This is what God 
looks like. So when we talk about Jesus, this is God we're talking about. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of life. Jesus, Colossians says, is the firstborn over all creation. The term firstborn is a title. It's a title of preeminence. The firstborn owns all things. So he's the firstborn over all creation, meaning he owns all things. Verse 16 says he created all things, meaning he holds patent rights over all things. He created, Colossians says, even authorities. So Jesus even creates the concept of authority. In John chapter 19, Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, the governor of the region, uh, as part of his trial before his crucifixion. And the religious leaders are trying to convince Pilate to condemn and crucify Jesus. And a small part of their conversation speaks to this issue. John 19 verse 9, he, that's Pilate, entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. This is one of the great ironies of the cross Jesus is mocked as powerless, yet in reality, he holds all power. So the hands that were unable to carry the cross were the same hands that created the tree that the cross was carved from. The voice that cries out in anguish from the cross is the same voice that breathed the universe into being. He's mocked as powerless, but in reality, he has all power. Number two, the one mocked as king is the king of kings. Notice what Colossians 1 says, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's the firstborn from the dead. He, he rules and reigns over death. He's, he's the first to rise from the grave so that others could follow. And because of his resurrection in everything, he is preeminent, meaning he has supremacy in everything. Now, I spent some time this week, I, I, I dug deeply into the original Greek of, of Colossians chapter 1, and I did a word study on this word for everything. I looked at the, you know, the, the root of the word and all of that. Guess what I found out this word everything means? It means everything. He is supreme over everything. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that the last enemy to be defeated is death. And this is what happened at the cross. Uh, unwittingly, these people who were orchestrating the death of Jesus put death itself 
into the octagon with Jesus to do battle. And Jesus came out victorious over death forever. Jesus has supremacy over everything. But not just everything. Let's bring this down. He has, according to Paul in verse 18, he has supremacy over the church. But it's more than that. He has supremacy over you. 1 Corinthians 6 says that Jesus purchased you with his blood. He owns you. Meaning he has all authority over you. So what, it, what an irony here. They mock him as king when in reality he's the king over all kings. He's the only one who has ultimate authority. Irony number three. The one who's mocked as unable to save himself saves others. Go back to Colossians 1 verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So this is God in the flesh. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Twice he uses the word reconciled. That's a relational word. He came to make peace between God and humanity. Well, that implies there was animosity between God and humanity. And indeed there was. I mean, look at some of the words that Colossians 1 uses to describe what your relationship with God was like. Alienated. Hostile. Those are not good words. Those are not positive words. Our lives were lived in rebellion against God. And whether by outright animosity or whether by apathy, you have been separated from God by the reality of your sin. But Jesus, by not saving himself, saves you. Of course he didn't save himself. Of course he didn't climb down from that cross because they were asking him to for a show. Of course he didn't. Because if Jesus doesn't go to the cross and voluntarily give his life, if Jesus doesn't die, he can't rise from the dead. And without the resurrection, there is no defeat of sin and death. He has to give his life so that... By his resurrection, you can be reconciled to God and have eternal life. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. He said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, so let them mock. Let them mock that he's powerless. He's not. He has all power. Let them mock him as some sort of fake or false king. He's not. He's the king over all 
kings, the only one with true ultimate authority. Let them mock that he was unable to save himself. No, he, he chose not to save himself and in so doing saves all those who will place their trust in the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he endured. Thank you that in the midst of all of that chaos, in the midst of all of the mocking and the suffering, and he did not climb down from the cross. He did not save himself. Instead, he saved your people. Purchasing for you, as the book of Revelation says, people from every tribe and nation and tongue all around the world, all those who will place their trust in the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for offering that to us by your grace. From your mercy, you invite us to trust in Jesus, to be reconciled to you. Thank you for the work of Jesus on our behalf. Thank you for what we celebrate on Easter. The death is not the end of the story. It was not the end for Jesus and it will not be the end for his people. We will walk triumphantly out of the grave into eternity. Thank you for Jesus who makes all that possible. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.